Hello and welcome to Max Politics. This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. Thanks for tuning in to this special edition of the podcast. What you're about to hear is a conversation I recently moderated among three great experts on New York politics on the 2021 New York City primaries, what just happened, what it all means, and what comes next. The conversation was part of a online event hosted by Citizens Union and Citizens Union Foundation. The foundation is, of course, the publisher of Gotham Gazette, and I've been happy to moderate a series of these civic conversations on a variety of topics over the last six months. We talked about small businesses, ranked choice voting, and other things. You can find the videos of those events at the Gotham Gazette or Citizens Union websites. If you'd rather watch the video of this special panel event on the primaries, you can also find the video of this Zoom panel at the Gotham Gazette or Citizens Union website. So in just a moment, you'll hear me introduce the three great panelists that we had for this event, Laura Namias, Howard Wolfson, and Eljoy Williams, and then our discussion about what happened in the primaries, what mattered, what didn't matter, why Eric Adams was victorious, and so much more. Hope you enjoy it. Let me introduce our great panelists here for this discussion. Laura Namias is a former Daily News editorial board member and a former Politico reporter. She currently writes on New York City and state and everything beyond for Fun City. And we'll drop the link to her Fun City substack in the chat. During the primaries, Laura was part of the Daily News editorial board that interviewed candidates for some top offices and made endorsements in a few races. And we'll get to that in a little bit. Eljoy Williams is a highly sought after political strategist, public speaker, and social justice activist. During the primary, Eljoy was a senior advisor on Ray McGuire's mayoral campaign, among other work she's been doing that we'll talk with her about. And she's always interesting on New York races and much more beyond. Howard Wolfson is a former deputy mayor for government affairs and communications in the Bloomberg administration and currently the education program lead of Bloomberg Philanthropies. During the primary, Howard interviewed all the top tier Democratic mayoral candidates, as well as the man they were seeking to replace, Bill de Blasio, and published those really interesting interviews at Bloomberg Opinion. And we'll throw a link to those for you to peruse later if you missed any of them, especially, of course, the one with Eric Adams, who won the primary. Uh, Laura Eljoy Howard, thank you for being here. Thank you. Thanks so much for having me. So this is a great panel. I have some questions for all of you and at times for individuals among you, but if you hear something you want to respond to, jump in on, agree, disagree, add something you forgot to say, just jump right in. This is a free flowing conversation and we will take a couple of audience questions at the end. Uh, so you can put those in, in on Zoom uh, in the question uh, tab and we'll try to get to one or two towards the end. All right, so let's start um, with each of you. A couple of big takeaways from the Democratic mayoral primary, whether it's about Eric Adams' success or anything else. What are a couple of things that stood out to you either during the race or now as we've had some time to process it, we knew a couple of weeks ago now that Eric Adams had won the primary. It was just certified this week. Uh, but a couple of big takeaways uh, before we zoom into some specifics that you've been thinking about. Uh, Eljoy, why don't we start with you? <laughs> I knew that was going to happen. Um, so, you know, my biggest takeaway and having watched everybody's, you know, commentary from Twitter from the day of um, the election going forward, 
was that, you know, I, I think it's a combination of things that led us to the results uh, that we have instead of a single thing, right? Everybody asks the question of what's the one thing that um, had the largest impact or um, is the result of where we ended up today. And there are a lot of different competing things that created the environment that we had for this primary. Obviously, ranked choice voting um, has had a significant impact. That had an impact on how many candidates were in the race, had an impact on who decided not to run, uh, things of that nature. The primary being in June also contributed to that factor. And we don't talk enough about the impact COVID had on the early part of the primary in terms of candidates really being able to be out and engaged. Um, and then one I always talk about is, you know, media coverage overall on who's worthy and who's viable and who much attention. And then just the quality and the quantity, quite frankly, of all of the candidates from the top of the ballot um, down to the bottom. So I think um, we have to, my biggest takeaways and what I try to impress upon folks is, that all of those things collectively and more had an impact on the race and you know people's decisions during that point from endorsements to being a candidate um, and ultimately to the voters who um, had to actually go in the booth and, and make a choice. Thanks, that's a great list. Uh, Howard. I, I agree with everything that Eljoy just said. I guess I would add um, specifically about Eric Adams and his victory um, how well his message and his biography and his set of experiences uh, sort of met the moment that the city was in. I think if, um, if the election had been held a year ago, he might not have won. Um, I think his victory was due in no small measure to the increase in crime and the perception of the increase in crime. I think if the election had been held, you know, a couple of years earlier than that, he might not have even been in a position to run. But I think that um, someone who had been a victim of police abuse as a young man, uh, or as a teenager, really, uh, someone who had become a police officer, who had uh, fought crime as a cop, who had also protested against police misconduct as a cop, who was able to speak to uh, both sides of the sort of the divide around policing and uh, and uh, racial equity and justice, I think was very well positioned to meet the moment that the city finds itself. Um, a city that is is concerned about crime, but a city that is uh, also deeply concerned about issues of policing and police misconduct um, and didn't want to sort of give back any of the ground that had been gained in either of those sectors. So um, he ran a good campaign. I think his message met the moment and he was in a way fortuitous that the, the moment met him. Thank you. Laura. Um, I think that I, in, in this being the first mayoral election that I participated in as a member of an editorial board and not as a reporter sort of liberated me personally from the, um, de facto kind of adversarial stance that that sometimes you take as a reporter towards anyone that you're covering. And it liberated me to see what I think Eljoy mentioned, which was the, I, I was incredibly impressed actually by the quality and quantity of candidates that we had, whether or not it was a factor of the increased campaign 
um, matching system or the rank choice system in some of the council races that were very lightly covered. And, and in the mayor's race, actually, I felt that that there were so many high quality candidates with interesting life stories. And actually um, it, it didn't get a ton of coverage everywhere, although Gotham Gazette did a great job, um, had, had really substantive policies um, and plans for, for what to do to bring the city back and, and help the economy after COVID. And I was, I was impressed. There were like 450, 500 candidates um, running and some of the council race candidates are really dynamic, young individuals, diverse, um, wonderful life stories. And I, I, it made me feel pretty optimistic. Maybe that's me being a little naive and Pollyanna-ish, but um, I, I, I was impressed by that. And then I think another takeaway was uh, just, the enduring strength of, of some of the labor unions who got a little bit less um, uh, play in the news cycles this time around, but but that's still a very important factor in, depending which union it is, in, in uh, um, turning people out to vote for you. And and uh, that's always been and, and will probably continue to be in the future. And you might not want to say it, but the power of editorial boards seem to have uh, have shown themselves a little bit here. Uh, on that note, Howard, what did you make of Catherine Garcia's near win here? Obviously, as Eljoy said, this is the first primary with ranked choice voting. Um, you know that that clearly seemed to be both part of her strategy and and kind of a system that she was tailor made for. Um, you know, as someone who who really wanted to be a lot of first choices, but also second and third. And she got, you know, those really big boosts from the Times and the Daily News um, and, and other endorsers. Uh, what do you make of, of her strength in this race? Well, I think you're exactly right about the strength of newspapers. That there were a lot of eulogies written for the papers and their impact on New York City politics. And the fact is that the New York Times endorsement of Catherine Garcia and the uh, Post endorsement of, um, of Eric Adams uh, and their sort of support of him I think were very meaningful in the context of the uh, of the result, um, but specifically with regard to Garcia, you know, um, I, I think the to the extent that that um, I can uh, uh, divorce myself from my total self interest here and say that there is something of a Bloomberg coalition that still exists in the city, um, she kind of captured that Bloomberg coalition. You know, the sort of college educated. Um, medium income and above, uh, mostly white, Manhattan and uh, parts of Brooklyn. Um, and that is also um, by happenstance, the the coalition of voters that probably is most impacted by the New York Times editorial page. Um, and so I don't think it's a coincidence that 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 group was sort of looking for somebody who was essentially non-ideological or, or seemingly non-ideological, somebody who was running on competency um, somebody who was basically uh, basically said, I'm going to come in and, and make government work, and I'm going to do it in a non-ideological way. Now, obviously, she had an ideology, and she had sort of positioned herself much more in the center than in the left. Um, but there's no question that she was propelled by the New York Times uh, editorial page uh, endorsement. Uh, and there, I think there's also no question that that, that endorsement met an electorate that was sort of looking for a candidate. I mean, there was no there was no sort of obvious 
candidate for, if again, if you'll permit me, the Bloomberg coalition, right? There was no, there was nobody else who kind of fit that bill. Um, I think Ray McGuire at one point, you know, maybe maybe could have been in that space. Um, you know, Scott Stringer maybe could have been in that space for lots of reasons they they weren't. And so there was a vacuum. People were looking around for a candidate, and and then she filled the bill. And then, as you said, in the context of ranked choice, she ran a, a you know, with very, very, very few exceptions, ran a totally positive campaign. And so anyone who was sort of looking around for a second or third choice, she hadn't offended anyone. She was basically running, as I said, as I said, on on kind of basic competency in government. And I think that positioned her well in a ranked choice environment to pick up a lot of second and third choice votes uh, from people who had not put her first. Uh, in the end, I think the fact that she really had no support in communities of color or no significant support in communities of color uh, prevented her from being mayor. You cannot be mayor of the city um, without without support in those communities. Um, but, you know, given where she started, given the fact that nobody essentially knew who she was, she certainly made an enormous amount of progress based on, I think, the strength of her own campaign and the and the support that she was able to get um, specifically from The Times. Thank you. Yeah. We uh, we had got the Gazette last week, published a big uh, sort of look at how Eric Adams brought his victory home. And just for today, we just published a, a pretty lengthy look at how Garcia exceeded all expectations and came up just short and pointed to several of the things you just mentioned. So uh, folks can can give that long read, a long read when they get a chance or, or both of those. Eljoy, when you um, when you were looking as a strategist at, at the messaging sort of across this campaign, whether it was Eric Adams's messaging or or any other messaging, um, what were some things that stood out to you that either really worked, didn't work? Um, you know, how how what what pieces as the electorate was really tuning in the the locked in group of folks that were paying attention early, and then the bigger group of the electorate that tuned in late. What were some things that stood out to you in terms of campaign messaging that you heard throughout this primary? Well, for me, from the messaging standpoint, it's always important also in terms it, it signaling who a campaign is actually talking to. Um, and for for me, part of the reason why I think um, Eric's uh, uh, campaign did well is one, they knew very um, uh, specifically who they were talking to and what messaging and what conversations um, those voters wanted to have and also wanted to hear and at what time. <laughs> um, so, cause they're, you know, cause you have a great message and then being able to deliver it to the people that you want to hear it and engage with it. And then while they're also paying attention. And so if you just think about the arc of the, of the primary cycle, right? So in the beginning where we're all on Zoom, where you know most of the people who are paying attention um, are politicals, are strategists, are you know all of us who basically we could have just stayed in the same Zoom room from beginning to end during that part of the primary season because it was the same people sort of tuning in, right? And you know at the same time, so it's what message am I saying there, right? That allows me to gain traction and attention, or am I just you know, doing the basic because these folks aren't really my voters. I'm not, you know, like they're really not going to propel me anywhere. And it makes me think back to that point of Eric's participation, sometimes not participating in things because he had who he wanted to talk to and who 
the voters were going to be that would lead him to uh, the victory that they were seeking, right? And then fast forward, when we're off of Zoom, we're finally in the streets, right? And again, the campaign knew very clearly who they were talking to. I think uh, another piece I wanted to uplift just in that conversation, because Howard mentioned, you know, it's very difficult in this city um, uh, from a citywide perspective to win something citywide without having any base of people of color. Um, and it's always very apparent to me during citywide races like this or it, that very few people know Black voters and the diversity of Black voters in this city. Um, and it's very apparent in terms of how people talk about Black voters, whether it's monolithic, right, and saying how we all, you know, vote together and have the sort of same desires and the same things that pro, uh, propel us to the polls. Um, and then just also as we talk about what issues matter and how they matter, right? So to be able to talk about um, Black voters of a certain age who are homeowners who care about their taxes, property taxes, care about the safety in this city, care about all of those things, while also making sure that they're not electing someone who's going to um, uh, have let the NYPD run roughshod all through their communities, right? That's also very different than younger, you know, Black voters um, or in younger voters of color in this city who want all of that. And you see from a progressive lens, and then you have people like me, Generation X, who are in the middle, right? So, so there are all of those different um, things. And I think Eric's campaign and the people on his campaign knew that very well. Um, and you see some of his comments, his cheeky comments about, you know, his race is not run on Twitter or things like that. But that, I mean, those are, you know, jokes and things, but really at the heart of it is that he had people on his team that know who those voters are, in addition to white working class voters in this city and ethnic white voters who he also has a reputation and a history with in this city. Laura, um, anything you heard that you want to respond to, go ahead. But my, my question this time around for you is going to be focused on Maya Wiley's campaign, you know, taking the top three uh, finishers here uh, in Eric Adams, Catherine Garcia, and Maya Wiley. Maya Wiley got more first rank votes than Catherine Garcia. She, Garcia, leapfrog Wiley in the ranked choice, but not by a big margin. Um, I always felt that Maya Wiley had among the sort of biggest ceilings in the race, um, but a lot would have to sort of break right for her, including probably the New York Times endorsement, which did not go to her. But um, anything you, you heard that you want to respond to, go ahead, ignore my question if you want, but also on Maya Wiley, you know, any sense from you as to as to why she she kind of didn't quite get over over that hump? Yeah, I I, uh, I, I wanted to point I, I made a note of it at the time. Um, I think the uh, to your earlier point about the power of newspapers uh, and newspaper endorsements, I, I noted um, uh, Catherine Garcia got the Times endorsement on May 10th and the Daily News endorsement on May 15th. And I looked at one point um, on, on May 17th at her filings and how much money she had raised. She'd raised $1.2 million at that point. And a third of it had come in just the single week between when she got the Times endorsement, some $400,000 came starting from the Times endorsement in that seven day period and $200,000 of it, half of that third came in the two days after she got the daily news endorsement too. So the Times endorsement, but the Times endorsement early 
allowed her, I think, to fundraise in a way that made her extremely competitive um, at a time when she was polling, what, one or two percent. I think that, yeah, it's and and people write the obituary of the newspapers all the time. And then, you know, it definitely still has a place in a Democratic primary in New York City. and, And that created a narrative of momentum that then she really capitalized on and took off. You know, it was, it was the value of those on their own. And then the momentum narrative, she got, you know, a series of profiles in, in other uh, publications, including the New Yorker and so on and so on. Uh, but, but go ahead. There, yeah, I mean, at, at, just to say on that, there was a, a conversation happening among, at that point before the endorsements, among a lot of people about how impressive she was as a candidate, but how she, no one wanted to support her because she couldn't win because she didn't have anyone's support publicly and she hadn't raised enough money and she wasn't polling high enough. It's sort of like a, a snake eating its own tail um, thing. Uh, and she definitely, if you have support, then you have support. You know, it, someone just needs to be the first domino to fall. Um, but Maya Wiley, I think her campaign was a, a victim of some circumstances that were within her control and some not within her control. I mean, I think the way that the WFP did its endorsement, um, which was nominally a ranked choice endorsement, but it was first, what was its first stringer? And then was Morales Morales second? Morales was their second, yeah. Morales second, and then Wiley. And then when Stringer was accused of sexual harassment, Stringer got taken out and they did a co-endorsement of Morales and Wiley. And then very late in the game, when Morales' campaign seemed to implode, they decided, okay, Wiley. Um, That sort of, I think, diluted the power of that endorsement um, pretty significantly to the extent that it had power. Um, I mean, but the, the the coalescing around Maya after, you know, Scott and then Diane, that coalescing behind Maya the last, what was that, two weeks um, mm-hmm. leading into the election where you started to have, you know, uh, the progressive left or, uh, organizations and individuals, sort of folks calling around. And then you see that very publicly, people trying to coalesce behind a candidate. Um, I, I would argue is a, a little late to kind of get, you know, that message, Absolutely. but at least it provided sort of some momentum, you know, as, uh, and I mean, we also give um, need to take into account sort of, as I mentioned at the top, the primary being in June, how different would any of this have been primary in September? Right. I mean, I think maybe if it had been a primary in September, there would have been time for uh, maybe Morales and Stringer to drop out of the race and throw their weight behind uh, Wiley or any combination of, of the three, I think that they, like if you contrast uh, Wiley's performance, for example, to Brad Landers, who was, I think, arguably the most progressive candidate in the controller's race, um, he, he won. Um, he didn't have a, another progressive splitting the, the vote, although, you know, I think Brian Benjamin is pretty progressive, but he didn't really run that way. Um, uh, I, I think that that she could have won, but there wasn't there wasn't enough time. There wasn't enough runway to to th- those you know uh, Morales imploding and and Stringer 
imploding happened fairly late in the game. There wasn't enough time to put mail behind it. I think that those were significant factors. And then also I think, and this last thing I'll say on this is that I'm really curious to know what people think, and this would probably be a good story at some point, about the the power of 1199 at this point in the city. Um, I, I it's gone through some internal changes, and I think I think since um, since they endorsed De Blasio in 2013, there's been some internal um, changes and struggles at the labor union, and and I wonder if you know periodically different unions are the most powerful in the city and not. And, and I wonder if, if HTC is, is considered the, is definitely more powerful than 1199 at this point. I'd be curious to know what people think about that. But well, yeah. And, and, you know, Eric Adams getting the hotel trades 32 BJ DC 37 altogether was, was clearly, as was mentioned earlier, uh, as you mentioned earlier, a very big boost for him. Howard, Laura's taking us exactly where I wanted to go next, which was sort of zooming out to the larger election cycle. You mentioned, you know, how Catherine Garcia appealed to, to voters and the way she was running. In that controller race, you saw Brad Lander kind of get the Garcia voters and the Wiley voters. So he was able to put together his map in the controller race. Uh, you know, so it seems like even a lot of sort of left-leaning voters might have might have really gone with Garcia in the mayoral race, where they where they went with Lander in the in the controller race. But zooming out even further, the controller race, the borough president races, the city council races, are there big picture themes here that you're taking away about sort of where the Democratic electorate in the in the city is is at right now? Well, that's a really interesting question because it, 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 you know, it's a little bit of a split verdict, right? It, it, you can, you can look at it and you can say, okay, Eric Adams won, and that suggests that the Democratic electorate is perhaps not as progressive as some people might suggest. Or you can look at the Comptroller's race and say, in Brad Lander, you had a very, very progressive candidate who was successful. Um, you know, at the top of the ticket, you know, my view was that that in the end. Um, in terms of an issue set, obviously there are other things at play. There's uh, there's there's geography and and uh, there's race and there's ethnicity uh, and class. But in terms of ideology um, and the issues that were being debated, in the end it was really kind of a debate around policing. Um, I mean, Maya Wiley's last spot was a, a, an ad that basically promised voters that she would hold police to account for. Um, for their abuses uh, and was not at all really focused on the increase in crime. It was really focused on the perception that um, that there were bad cops and they were doing bad things and that they needed to be stopped. Uh, and clearly that resonated with with some people. Um, there was a contrast. I mean, Eric Adams talked about the fact that we you know, need to need to have more police uh, in the subways, that we need to bring back you know, the gun unit. Uh, his was was not a Frank Rizzo style, tough on crime, crackheads message, but it was certainly more of uh, of a message that was focused on bringing down crime than Maya Wiley's was, and a different approach to bringing down crime. Um, and you know, at least in the context of the mayor's race, my view was you know voter preference in the end matters, and there was a preference for Eric Adams' view of that uh, issue than there was for Maya Wiley's. Um, both candidates advertised on it. It became, you know, polls showed that it was the number one issue of importance to voters. And I think that there was a clear choice between the number one and the number two uh, candidates. Um, 
But you know, you could certainly look at the set of facts and 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 say in the controller's race, just the opposite. Uh, you know, Brad Lander offered a very very progressive vision. He was successful. I, I guess my view is is that um, at the end of the day, people are looking for a mayor to 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 deal with some of these tough issues around crime, and they are voting on crime uh, in a mayor's race in a way that they are not in a controller's race. Um, but I certainly think that that somebody who is more progressive than I am certainly could look at the results and say, you know, we've got we had a lot of races at city council that we that we won. Um, the progressives won. We won a controller's race. But I, I think it is fair to say that at least at the top of the ticket, there was a clear contrast on the most important issue to voters and that voters sided with the candidate offering the more moderate message on that issue. Well, listen, three of the top four finishers had about that same message, right? I mean, when you look at Garcia and Yang as well. Um, and unfortunately, we're not, we, don't even, we don't even have time during this panel to really talk about Andrew Yang's impact on the race and his, his cannonballing in and then fading away, although anybody who wants to throw in a thought on that, please do, because that's obviously was one of the dominant storylines for a while. And then he wound up, you know, almost, almost an afterthought in the end, although obviously the alliance with Garcia towards the end, um, you know, played an interesting role, though we don't know how, how full of an impact it had on the results. Eljoy, um, when we talk about newspaper endorsements, when we talk about union endorsements, um, what in your assessment sort of seemed to matter in terms of um, affecting voters' behavior in this race? What are you know, what are some of the other either individual actors or group actors or events or themes that, you know, you think really mattered here as we as we try to assess what happened and why both in the mayoral race and then controller race, borough presidents, uh, city council, obviously, Jamani Williams was, you know, being quite easily uh, given the nomination again in the public advocate race. But across the, the election cycle here, what else are you thinking about in terms of what really matters and what really moves voters? Um, <clears throat> I've actually been talking about in, uh, uh, this a lot in terms of one endorsements and what they mean because they mean different things to different entities. You know, um, endorsements mean something to you guys who write about it, right? Because you equate that with some validity of a person's campaign or their organizing piece. Um, endorsements for me as a strategist on a campaign means like, what am I getting out of it? What is my candidate getting out of it, right? And so if you're talking about, um, as Laura mentioned for some of the unions, you know, I still, you know, view not that I um, uh, suggest that Laura, that you were <laughs> talking about 1199's influence uh, waning. Um, but if you know where those members are, um, they matter significantly. Their endorsements matter significantly just in them doing communication to their members, right? So if I'm, you know, if I'm running uh, a race or uh, the areas in, you know, central Brooklyn matter most to me um, in terms of my candidate's race, then getting DC 37, 1199, you know, hotel trace, that matters significantly. So whether or not they do anything but talk to their members, is gonna matter significantly to um, the candidates that are relying on those areas or, the, or their votes from that perspective. I think the other thing, as we, we talked about the uh, paper endorsements, um, as someone who supports local um, uh, press very actively, 
I don't think we give enough attention to uh, very small local hyper local papers and ethnic papers in the city and how the conversations that are happening on those um, um, in those trades uh, impact conversations. You can look at that as it pertains to some of the city council races as well as broad conversations about um, who those particular smaller communities um, uh, want to see and what issues are relevant to people in those small micro communities. I know we like to think of New York City holistically, this big city, but we are small neighborhoods make up <laughs> the city of New York. And you can go from, you know, 10 blocks difference and there'll be a number of different smaller issues that matter to people. Um, and so that um, really has influence. So I would say, um, you know, media certainly has an impact in varying degrees um, from the New York Times down to uh, Haitian Times. Um, and then uh, the, the, the unions organizations. But, you know, one thing, and I say this even as a democratic strategist and someone, um, you know, who uh, came up in my career being part of democratic clubs um, and working, is it's really interesting on how these clubs and these sort of political local operations are changing um, and some for the better, some who are not um, and what impact they also have in races, getting those democratic club endorsements and what that means for candidates and for the voters they um, in the areas they are saying that they represent. Um, definitely COVID had an impact on the ability for some of these democratic clubs to really uh, organize, which they use local elections to organize base of voters um, and to support candidates. Um, so it's been interesting to see how that has uh, changed over time. Um, and that's actually directly connected to some of the fights that we're seeing with county organizations um, and the progressive left as well. All right, we're in our last uh, 10 minutes here. Thank you again to these great panelists for a great discussion so far. I'm gonna work in a couple audience questions in a minute. Um, I'll also add to, the, to that list, you know, by the way, um, money. I mean, money probably still matters. Eric Adams had by far the most spending of the top three finishers, um, but it doesn't mean, doesn't mean everything, of course, because, you know, we, we, we saw spending all over the map among the top eight candidates and, and the results didn't, didn't easily map onto to the spending. Um, Howard, can Curtis Lewa make this a competitive general election at all? Is there anything you're watching for here? Four plus months still to go, anything could happen, a scandal, a huge mistake by Eric Adams, something like that. But um, what do you make of the general election landscape? Uh, the short answer to your question is no, he cannot make a competitive general election. It would take, it would take an alien invasion. Uh, or some some extraordinary act of God to uh, to change that dynamic. So, if we're looking at a likely Eric Adams as the next mayor, Howard, from from your interview with him and anything else, what are some what are a couple of your biggest sort of hopes for him that you see you see him promising that you think are very promising and are very sort of almost likely for him to to deliver that you think he he really is capable of doing and any big fear, any big concern about how he might govern the city that you have? Well, let me take the question two ways quickly. You know, as a, as a New Yorker, I'm excited about the, just the change in government. Um, I don't, I think Bill de Blasio did some good things, especially early on in the first term. I think, you know, eight years, uh, he's, he's probably ready to, to go to the next stage of his life. 
Um, and I think that that Eric Adams will, you know, bring a, a sort of a burst of, of energy uh, and enthusiasm to City Hall that's been a little bit lacking. I think one of the one of the reasons that Eric Adams did well, in addition to sort of the this kind of balanced message around uh, cr crime uh, and policing, was that he he really wanted the job. I mean, this was a guy who, you know, talked a lot about getting up at four thirty in the morning and beginning his day with exercise and meditation, and then. He went out to Eljoy's point about when people began campaigning in person. This was a guy who hit the streets and he was out all day working. Uh, and so I think he's going to bring that kind of work ethic, a lot of enthusiasm uh, to the position. And I hope that he is able to to get a handle on the rise in crime um, at the same time, sort of preserving some of the gains that have been made in in police community uh, relations. So um, I, I'm I'm excited and and eager to see sort of what's next. And I think. He, he will be idiosyncratic and interesting in ways that, you know, maybe Bill de Blasio wasn't. Um, you know, the fact that he did a sit down interview with Brett Stevens of The New York Times, who is, you know, the, uh, a pretty conservative columnist there, I think kind of suggests that he's not going to be pigeonholed and he's not going to allow himself to be pigeonholed. Or at the very least, he's going to go out and talk to lots of different uh, people in ways that maybe we haven't seen in the last eight years. And I guess very quickly from a national perspective, as somebody who you know spends a lot of time working uh, on behalf of Democratic candidates nationally, I I'm excited that his election seems to um, give Democrats an opportunity to get out of this kind of um, defund police cul-de-sac that that the party was in in ways that I think were fairly damaging, um, and give candidates around the country a way to talk about police and community. Um, equally uh, in ways that will both appeal to Democratic voters and to voters in the middle. I think that Adams, uh, his his messaging on this and the fact that he was successful really kind of gives an opportunity and a roadmap to Democrats to speak both to the base and to the middle on issues of, of policing and community um, uh, that I think will be very helpful. Elger, let me come back to you. You talked about where you are in the middle of these gener you know, these other generations of black voters uh, and voters in the city. From from your lens and and from what you've spoken about about those diversity of, of views and voters, what do you sense in terms of um, you know some of the hopes for what Eric Adams can deliver uh, if he is successful in the general election and any any of the biggest concerns that you have or you or you hear. Yeah, I'm looking forward to, um, you know, besides the energy and the fun things that, uh, um, you know, <laughs> Eric will say um, that will obviously um, create a lot of content for people. Uh, <laughs> besides that, I'm really looking forward to at, at the end of the day, I believe Eric has um, a desire to really serve the city um, and to really um, think of things think of policy and legislation and changes to city government that will significantly um, impact particularly communities of color and particularly um, those communities who have been historically marginalized in the city and really need some attention. My concern is that some of the way that he 
uh, practices politics, or at least the people around him practice politics, can do him a disservice and also can do his desire to actually serve the city of New York a disservice. Um, and so that's my concern. And I'm also going to have to do this, you know, as an advocate and a political right, this dual service of challenging him um, and pushing him to do uh, what's right in terms of addressing some of the issues that was in his plan, um, but then also a voice in protecting, <laughs> you know, him, um, whether it's a, um, a tax from uh, people who are not happy about him winning um, to uh, folks being outwardly racist, which still happens in New York City, right? So it's this dual work that is going to have to be done um, from a lot of uh, activists of color who are going to have to challenge him because he represents the city. He rep he's the mayor and, you know, the mayor gets protested all the time, but at the same time, uh, protecting sort of um, uh, racism, protecting against um, unfair um, conversations about his leadership and his leadership style. So that's going to be uh, an interesting uh, uh, thing to do, <laughs> at least over the next four years. Very, very interesting points there. Laura, uh, you'll probably be our final thought here. I want to, uh, you can jump in on anything you just heard, or I wanted to get your thought because you just wrote about this. And again, people should check out Laura's uh, Substack uh, at Fun City uh, Substack on ranked choice voting. Um, any, any assessment of how it went? Uh, we're still waiting to see a lot of data from the Board of Elections, so we can't really give a full assessment yet. But um, a final thought here on the initial implementation of ranked choice voting and what you're looking at there. Um, yeah, I, I, I think just first to say my hopes for the Adams administration, I think in conversations with him, he and, and for many decades now, he is extremely fluent in uh, police department practice and policy and has been talking for a very long time about the value of representation, not just in the rank and file at the police department, which I think the past few mayors have touted the increase in diversity in the department, but it's mostly at the bottom levels. Um, I think that he is someone, I have hopes that he can address some of what is broken at the police department, which a variety of commentators and official actors, including um, the IG's office or the Department of Investigation um, have said is a cultural problem that is is sort of um, embedded within the police department. I have hopes that his fluency and his familiarity with the department can can allow him to pinpoint problems and fix them and do a better job of that than I think de Blasio did, who seemed like he um, he outsourced a lot of the work because he wasn't as familiar with with how things worked before he came in. Um, and then how ranked there's, not, there's a police siren outside my window. I don't know if any, everybody can hear that, but uh, anyway, go ahead. Um, ranked choice voting. I am, I'm really interested to see the ballot, uh, what other data we're going to have, and we'll have a wealth of data and we can pick it apart of, of seeing how voters who ranked uh, Adams first, how their ballots looked, and, and seeing that for each of the candidates, I don't think it's going to break down along ideological lines at all. And um, but what I do think is really interesting is the is the way, and this is sort of what I was getting at in in this latest post for the Substack, and and there's a lot more that I need to do, and and others will do too, um, in terms of researching what happened here. But but this is a city where you can't 
to the extent that you're you're making appeals to voters who are going to vote along racial or ethnic lines, you can't win citywide office with just one of any group at this point. You need to pull in voters either either white and black or white and Asian or black and Latino and and or black and Hispanic or any combination of the of the above. Um, and you can't just appeal to one racial or ethnic group and um, looking at what Garcia was almost able to do, pulling in some Yang voters and what Eric Adams was successfully able to do, um, pulling in uh, um, some voters from northern Manhattan and the Bronx who, you know, were likely from from uh, uh, heavily Hispanic uh, census districts and election districts is going to be really interesting. And, and the math on that is changing all the time because the composition of the city is changing all the time. And it's there's there's always a formula for winning and, and that formula is is changing. And I think it has changed in this election. I'm very interested to see the analysis that comes out in the next couple of weeks and months. Yeah, it's going to be very interesting to see uh, uh, many, many things about the ranked choice cast vote, uh, including including what we have no idea how it broke, you know, the, the second choice voters for Catherine Garcia and Eric Adams, because the final two voters, you never get to see them in the initial way things shift, you never get to see them eliminated and where some of their votes go. So that'll be very interesting. We have to leave it there. We could keep going here for hours, but uh, really thank you, all three of you, our great panelists, Laura Namias, Eljoy Williams, and Howard Wilson. Really appreciate the time and the thoughtful discussion.